Today's podcast is brought to you by Shudder, the premium streaming video service devoted to horror, thrillers, and suspense. Backed by AMC Networks, Shudder lets you discover a library of horror films from around the world and across the decades. Yes, they have the original Wicker Man. Yes, they have The Visitor, one of my favorite cult classics ever. The service has something for everyone, from the casual fan to the hardcore horror devotee. Shudder's available on the web, iOS, Android, Chromecast, Apple TV, and Roku for $4.99 a month or $49.99 with an annual membership. Listeners can get a free month by entering promo code PEAKS at checkout. Go to Shudder.com today to find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere. Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly, and hello, Darren Franich. I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. Jeff, call for help. Call for help. Call for help, Jeff. (laughs) Call for help. Make change. Make change. (laughs) I hope that everyone who's listening knows exactly what we're talking about. If not, then you definitely need to get to Showtime and watch the first four parts of Twin Peaks The Return. Um, We will be diving into and deconstructing and analyzing and geeking out just in general on parts three and four of Twin Peaks The Return, which aired on Sunday night. We will be just plowing through both of those episodes in this one podcast. So uh, we'll, we'll be covering a lot of ground quite quickly and offering our thoughts on some analysis, some of our favorite scenes. And our second podcast that we'll also be posting that you'll find here, um, we're going to do a little bit more geeking out with a special guest, uh, Damon Lindelof, the co-creator of Lost, the co-creator of The Leftovers. Damon has the fortune slash misfortune of having The Leftovers airing the same night as Twin Peaks. And if any of you watched last night's episode of The Leftovers, which, by the way, is having an amazing season here in season three, its last season, uh, they went full tilt Lynch in their own way with a sequel to uh, last year's uh, very surreal dream episode, International Assassin, a very pivotal episode that sets up next week's series finale. So we'll be talking with him about Twin Peaks because he has lots of thoughts on Twin Peaks. He's been watching, he's into it. Um, And we're going to talk to him about The Leftovers. But right now, in this hour, uh, we're going to recap parts three and four of Twin Peaks and just Darren, just general impressions of, of of what we saw. We really hit the David Lynch comedy. I mean, it was the David Lynch comedy hours last night, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, David Lynch as comedian is like sort of a concept that I, I'm obviously familiar with because his work can be funny, but I'm not sure I'd ever really contrived the idea that he can be a full-scale comedy director as much as in these two episodes. And Jeff, just the rhythms of the comedy are just so unusual and so remarkable. Um, You know, the little just gradual building bits with Agent Cooper in the casino and just like the repetition of him going, hello! And then the little sound that that would play on the soundtrack whenever he would see another jackpot, which just got funnier and funnier every time I heard it. I was texting you about this, but I do think there's an element to certainly the comedy in this season that I can sort of compare to 
the famous sideshow Bob joke from The Simpsons, where it's like, the first time he steps on the rake, you're kind of like, all right, like, whatever. Second time, yeah. But the 10th time, and then the 10th through 20th time, it's the funniest thing you've ever seen. And, like, I mean that as a huge compliment. There's something to just the rhythms of these two episodes that felt just so comedically timed so, so well, which then, when we got to the moment at the end, which was decidedly not comedic, I really felt that great sort of, you know, rug being pulled out from under you feeling that the tonal shifts of of the original series could uh, give me. So, oh, I mean, just so many great comedy beats to dive into. What what sort of jumped out about these two episodes for you, Jeff? Well, um, you know, the comedy of it all uh, was was definitely really humorous. I think I even appreciated it the more the second time around. I've watched these episodes now twice. I kind of feel with, with David Lynch and coming back to him and encountering him anew, there is a shock of the new all over again with David Lynch where I'm simultaneously mesmerized and thrown by him. And I think it's almost upon second watch where I'm actually coming to it again and I, I, I get it. I know what I'm dealing with that I actually can enjoy it more. The one thing that I really appreciate upon second watch about this, uh, about these two episodes and this sort of like hitting the mode of lynching comedy, but Twin Peaks comedy, because Twin Peaks was funny too, is that it really helps to humanize and ground this story, especially after a very strange and, and very intense and pulpy and scary uh, first couple uh, hours that really hit those nodes hard. But with that said, you know, as we dig into part three here, we begin our, our recap of part three, you know, the, the, the comedy isn't there right away. We get this, we open part three with some high, strange lynch, Agent Cooper's falling out of that big glass box uh, in New York from last week, falling through space and landing in some strange space station that uh, floating in space or negative space or the lands between uh, life and death, heaven and hell, that feels like some kind of like object prop uh, that was never used in Eraserhead or maybe tucked into a scene of Eraserhead that I never saw. Um, what, what, what did you make of that whole sequence? Well, Jeff, I thought more than anything, it was really nice seaside property. You know, he had a nice view onto the infinite ocean of sadness and misery, which in fairness is still a view onto an ocean, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, you know, what struck me when he went into the room, you had this interesting kind of evolution of the surreal... Uh, outer dimensionality that we've seen on Twin Peaks. You know, instead of the backwards talk, there was this strange kind of clipped movement. He walked in and he saw this strange woman whose face seemed to be not all there. She didn't didn't really have eyes. She seemed to be trying to kind of communicate with him. I thought a little bit about, like, the way that Cooper came in through the window. I was sort of wondering if there was some kind of Peter Pan thing happening because, of course, he had basically flown to her window. Um, But then things got like real mist real quickly when they climbed up a ladder and then suddenly they were on a box, uh, a metal box floating in space. And then the woman had to 
sort of pulled a lever and and the, the way the lever was moving it reminded me a little bit of like the frozen donkey wheel scene from Lost it seemed as if something had been kind of set off its course or she had to somehow fix it and as she was sort of pulling this lever I was thinking well this is great this will fix everything and then she can kind of start explaining what's going on right then she fell further into the infinite abyss which I thought was kind of you know sad for her but at least things seemed to seem to suddenly become a little bit more clear for Agent Cooper and of course, right then is when we had the least expected original character cameo of the season so far, the giant floating head of Major Briggs, uh, played by the late, great Don Davis, sort of flew by underneath and said, Blue Rose. I didn't know what to make of any of this, really, Jeff. What was your kind of takeaway from all the strange doings in this bizarre ocean space metal elevator lever sort of sequence? Yeah, I appreciated it first and foremost as just a classic bit of Lynchian mystification of just uh, being absorbed by the mood, by the filmmaking of it all. I feel like I don't necessarily have a lot of theories for anybody in terms of like syncing this up with Twin Peaks mythology. Like, where are we? Are we in the realm, the larger realm of where the Black Lodge resides? And I'm going to trust that the, that the story will either explain this down the road or not. <laughs> I, I'm completely open to not. But what I would say is just just to feel my way through this and, and looking at it through maybe more than anything, not a Twin Peaks lens, but a David Lynch lens. When you start looking at it through a David Lynch lens, the whole thing becomes really fascinating and poignant because this isn't just Twin Peaks dropping back into our lives, Darren. This is David Lynch dropping back into our lives. This sort of like amazing cinematic artist who marches to the beat of his own drummer, who is famously odd and weird and has, has his own sort of very personal visual and emotional vocabulary that he works with. And I took the whole thing as a metaphor for David Lynch coming back to us and re-entering the world and asking whether or not, you know, like making peace with his own sort of like history and legacy and, and wondering if he has anything new to offer us, you know. So look at it from this point of view, if you see Agent Cooper as a representation of Lynch, you know, falling through the sky to this space station and landing in, in, in this place where he kind of looks out. And I was struck by the color purple, the purple hues of the whole thing. Uh, very, very melancholy. So here's Agent Cooper falling into this purple place and looking out upon this ocean and in this water um, and feeling in a sort of interesting mood and uh, filled with this kind of longing. Um, and then he enters into this space where that woman with the sealed up eyes resides. And what really struck me about that filmmaking, which you described, this sort of stuttery filmmaking where where the frames move one step forward, two steps back, and then scuttle ahead. Um, but what struck me is, is that when he moves toward her and they touch and they connect, that effect stops and time becomes more fluid. So there seems to be this sort of metaphor of isolated people sharing space that seems to distort time and they but when they connect and when they touch like like there is some continuity between them and then when they stop touching it starts again and i kind of took that as a a metaphor for just the importance of human connection but maybe the 
this film artist sort of reconnecting with us and with his audience. And then, yeah, like going up that ladder and then flipping the switch and she ends up flying off. And I, I don't really know what, what, what to make of that. But then going back down into the room and we encounter this other person now. There's another person who is living in the space station who has taken her place. And I don't know what you made of that. Was, was this person the person who was pounding on the outside of the space station trying to get in? I had a pretty solid theory here, which, which builds off of something that you had mentioned in your recap, Jeff. Um, because the, the woman that we saw down there, the actress was Phoebe Augustine, who played Ronette Pulaski, the character in the original Twin Peaks, who was essentially a, a co-victim with Laura Palmer. She didn't die, but she was kind of there during the events that rooted the original show. Now, strangely, in the credits of that that episode of episode three that we just uh, that we just saw she was credited as American girl so I'm not sure if we're meant to understand that that was a version of Ronette or not or if it was just David Lynch bringing in everyone he's ever worked with back for this episode but what she said was you'd better hurry my mother's coming and that's when that kind of knocking outside started up like the 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 strange knocking that we'd already heard earlier in that space station and, and what she said was you'd better hurry my mother's coming and it's really in my head now that this strange creature who seems to be following dale or at least following in his wake or at least you know b blowing minds of attractive young people in new york city it's in my mind that that creature may be laura and so you know not that laura was ronette's mother but laura was certainly tied into this incredible trauma that ronette experienced so i i but i was kind of watching that through the prism of, of, of stuff that you had said. Did you kind of experience that moment in a on a different level? Well, it's funny you should say that. I forgot that I wrote that in my recap. I like your theory. That's really good. That <laughs> makes a lot of sense. That, that, that The monster that is stalking Agent Cooper was outside pounding. Although, you know, wh where did she go like when they went on top? I, I, I don't know. But, you know, the thing about that, Darren, is you're right. She is listed in the credits as American Girl. And the the first thing I thought, of course, was my daughter's doll collection. But the second thing I thought about was the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers song, American Girl. And um, it's interesting. There's a legend behind that song. I don't know if you know it, Darren, which it was, it's an urban legend. It's not true. But a famous legend about that song was that it was inspired by a woman committing suicide by throwing herself off of a building. But the other thing about the lyrics of that song, check out this stanza here. Um, it says, uh, well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on her balcony. She could see the cars roll by out on the 441, like waves crashing in on the beach. And for one desperate moment there, he crept back in her memory. God, it's so painful. Something's that's so close and yet still so far out of reach. And all of that imagery there, 
that is suggested by that, with the exception of cars, <laughs> um, is in that scene, right? <laughs> like, like Cooper kind of comes down, yeah. he lands on a balcony, he looks out, he sees ocean coming in, he sneaks in through a door into this abode that's resided by this woman or these women, like someone creeping into a memory like this. So, And how did Dale get there? I'll tell you how. He was free fallen. <laughs> free fall. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is the kind of hard hitting analysis that you get from this podcast. I would say though that American Girl was released as a single in in I believe February of 1977, one month before the release of Eraserhead. So again, I feel like and we won't dote on it here in this in, in this podcast, but I will dote on it in my written recap. I just want to say that my big thesis here for this week is that part three is all about David Lynch's nostalgia, um, his nostalgia for his own past and confronting it and dealing with it um, and reconnecting, if you will, with his artistic identity that he forged with films like Eraserhead and his more um, sort of edgier, you know, uh, art house approach to cinema. Uh, Jeff, I want to move us to what uh, I'm going to term the uh, vomit montage, um, certainly the the grossest portion of the season so far, which also introduced unexpectedly and somewhat difficult given how, how given how often this show deals in sort of pairings and duologies introduced a third Kyle McLaughlin or a third Agent Cooper or a third person with the same face um, we suddenly shifted gears to the sort of suburbs of Las Vegas Rancho Rosa Estate Rancho Rosa of course is the name of the company that David Lynch and Mark Frost have created to sort of produce this new season so some some strange resonance already if you've you've been paying attention to the opening credits in Rancho Rosa Estate a man by the name of Dougie Jones who looks a lot like Kyle MacLachlan if Kyle MacLachlan were a golf sportscaster in in the mid-1970s seems to be like just finishing an assignation with a young lady not his wife we will later find out he's wearing a green ring we've talked a lot about the importance of the green ring that was central throughout Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me and he just becomes very, very ill. While all this is happening separately, Dark Agent Cooper is also getting violently ill and is crashing his car. Just lots of lots of general ill feelings going on in this moment, Jeff. And all of this is being linked by what's going on with Agent Cooper in the space station in negative space, where he is uh, drawn to an electrical outlet on the wall that has the number three above it. It had the number 15, I believe, during his when he first went into the room. And then when he went upstairs and the woman turned the lever, he came back downstairs and the number had changed. I don't know ex- the significance of that numerology, but he's drawn to this outlet on the wall. And every time he moves toward it, he either gets zapped. And if he moves closer toward it, he's starting to get, it, like, get sucked into it, sucked into the outlet. Meanwhile, in Dark Cooper's car, or Dirty Cooper, as I like to call him, the electrical outlet or the lighter socket is starting to glow and is messing with him as well um, as of drawing to him. And he starts seeing visions of the red room and the red curtains. Meanwhile, somewhere else, uh, Dougie um, has, did you say that he was with his wife in that room? I thought that was not exactly his wife. 
No, no, no. He was with a woman who was definitely not his wife. <laughs> was definitely not his wife. We, got meet, it, got it. we meet his wife later. So she's taking a shower. But yes, he's getting nauseous. He's getting ill. But so is uh, Dark Cooper in his car. And he's, you know, Doug's trying to get into the, uh, to the, to the bathroom to throw up. He can't. He gets on his hands and knees. He's, he's crawling now toward maybe another bathroom, but it's taking him close to an electrical outlet. So all of these electrical phenomenons are happening um, in all of these three different spaces um, with three different versions of Cooper. And two of them are becoming extremely physically ill and then something very weird happens to all of them. Yeah, as Dirty Cooper and Dougie are both kind of vomiting simultaneously, we see Dougie get pulled into the red room where he talks to the one-armed man, and what the one-armed man says to him is, someone manufactured you for a purpose, but I think now that's been fulfilled. And we kind of see a close-up on Dougie's left hand. His left hand kind of shrinks and the green ring falls off. Dougie looks down and says, in what is really the line reading of the episode, and there are great line readings throughout this whole episode, Dougie says, that's weird, and then just sort of disappears. And all that's left is this sort of like black smoke left. We're, we're seeing a lot of this interesting disappearing effect so far this season, and I thought this was kind of the most horrifying. Like, it was just sort of, you know, you're just kind of left looking, and, you know, without Comic Lachlan's face, just the clothes he's wearing, it really kind of looks like, you know, Marv Albert or something just like departed so (laughs) what's left where dougie was is a little yellow orb and of course his green ring which then goes back to the the, the sort of pedestal where the green ring was in twin peaks fire walk with me i I have a couple theories about all that but like i I think i want to kind of move us along jeff to what's happening back in what we may as well term the real world which is that Dirty Cooper's car gets overturned. The policemen uh, who come to sort of check on him, one of them gets violently ill just by kind of stepping towards the car. They call in some assistance. And meanwhile, enter the hero of the story back onto the balance of reality. Agent Dale Cooper wakes up on the floor of this house that seems abandoned in Rancho Rosa Estates. Yes. We've had a birth. It's it's a birth, it's a rebirth, it's a taking over, it's sort of a heaven can wait with, with Warren Beatty. A total cuckoo bananas scene. That was not how I expected Agent Dale Cooper to return to us. Right. And before we start blowing more quickly through these episodes, just real quick, I like, did you understand upon watching um, from a deep knowledge Twin Peaks point of view, did you have a good feel about what was happening here and how all of this was the payoff of Dirty Cooper's line from last week in which he said that he had a plan for, we came to understand last week that the Black Lodge was calling for him and wanted to recall him back into uh, that reality. Um, I, I guess you get the sense that he has a a 25-year lease on life where he only has a certain amount of time in this world before he has to go back to the Black Lodge. So the Black Lodge was going to recall him, um, but he had a plan. He sort of, you know, I guess he had this green ring and he put it on Dougie and uh, he created Dougie, put the green ring on as as a way to like fake out the Black Lodge in terms of which which of his versions to like suck up. Did you get all of that? 
Um, so I, the short answer, no, because what was really on my mind the second I heard that this Dale Cooper's name was Dougie and that he was wearing a green ring, I jumped straight to the book that Mark Frost wrote last year, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, where the main character in that book, to make a long story short, is Twin Peaks resident Dougie Milford, who sort of is tied into all these larger mysteries and who at some point does wear that green ring. And so I thought for a second that it was actually a flashback and that young Dougie Milford looked like Kyle MacLachlan. So once it became clear that that's not what was happening, I sort of had to reset myself a little bit. And and, and the significance of the vomit, uh, in case you were absolutely perplexed by that, and I can confirm the substance of the vomit because I had a chance to interview Kyle McLaughlin this, this past week. We got to chat a little bit about the, the first couple episodes. That stuff is creamed corn, creamed corn streaked with bile. And if you know what creamed corn is in the Twin Peaks universe, it is the it is the symbolic or physical representation of the pain and sorrow that the the Black Lodge deities uh, like feed on when they create misery in the world the, the misery that they create in the world is the food that they live on and it and it is physically represented by creamed corn so the idea that these two versions of dirty cooper were barfing up their pain and sorrow were barfing up their creamed corn which is, i guess is their their life stuff the stuff that keeps them going is really important and, and a big reason why i think that maybe dirty cooper was trying to keep it all in he was keeping trying to keep it all in and i think that i i have to say that i've i got this speculation from someone else but it could be that there is a theory out there that says that that was why the one-armed man could so easily see through Dougie and know that it really wasn't Bob because he barfed up his pain and sorrow in the real world before he got sucked through the electrical socket. So by being voided of the pain and sorrow, if he had kept that stuff in him, maybe he could have faked out the Black Lodge into thinking that he really was Agent Cooper's doppelganger. That makes sense, but say it the right way. It's not creamed corn, it's Garmon Bozia. <laughs> right. But Jeff, so after, I mean, this is just like a real leaf blower of like Black Lodge myth stuff being thrown at us. Like, I would say even more extreme than what we saw in the first two, just because it was like so much to deal with in three different places all at once. Um, but from there, we sort of shifted into a sort of delightful, almost like, uh, oh God, what's that Peter Sellers movie about the guy who suddenly, it was almost sort of like a, a weird like being there or man who fell to earth, yes. kind of fish out of water comedy. Agent Dale Cooper, who is the person that we know and recognize as Agent Dale Cooper, he sort of isn't really able to speak or interact. He seems shell-shocked. Um, you know, the, the mistress uh, that Dougie was seeing sort of like, she says, okay, like, uh, you know, why are you acting so strange? And also, like, were you wearing a wig the whole time? And also, you've lost a lot of weight. Like, you know, but she's she's just kind of like, you know, we got to get you home. And while, while all this is happening, there are two men with guns who seem like they came there to kill Dougie. And in a moment that really brings forward to me just, just the almost silent comedy absurdity, 
of some of the stuff that we were seeing here. They're all ready to shoot Dale because, of course, they think that he's Dougie. But as the car drives by uh, the man with the gun, Dale drops his keys to the Great Northern, which he still has in his pocket after all these years. And he's just sort of fishing around on the floor of the car so they don't see him, (laughs) which is a scene that it sounds so simple, but in execution, I found it hilarious. Now, Now, while this is happening, though, Jeff, I thought just... A total standout moment of this episode and just a moment that like just felt like real carved from the primal edge of David Lynch's brain as Dougie uh, left this sort of house in Rancho Rosa we cut over briefly to a house right across the street from where they had been and what we saw in there was sort of a young boy kind of looking out the window a woman who seemed to be his mom was doing what looked like every kind of drug one can do, like just, you know, pouring herself whiskey and taking a pill. And there was a lot of powder on the table in front of her. Just the the single shot of her that was held for so long felt like this tableau of absolute misery. And because nothing can happen on, on this episode without us needing to mark down one more number to analyze, she kept on saying 119. One one nine, one one nine. I I just found that haunting, and you you had you had I thought some good clarity on what that might mean as a Twin Peaks moment, right? Well, first of all, I I totally agree that that moment with the mom and her child, presumably so sad, and and I think I I interpreted one one nine simply to mean nine one one backwards. And that it, that kind of sort of accentuates just how messed up and tragic that whole thing there was. But I was struck by this whole this whole setting in general and the people that are within it. It, it feels to me some kind of doubling, more doubling now of certain like Black Lodge slash Red Room mythology aspects and people. The fact that, you know, Rancho Rosa, you know, word wise, like, you know, has some Red Room uh, to it there. But with that woman and with that small child, you know, the first thing I thought of was actually the the, the Chalfonts uh, from the original series, the grandmother and her little magician boy son, who seemed to be part of the, the Black Lodge mythology. They they sort of like lo- loiter on the edges. They're sort of attendants and observers to tragic situations. Um, they once lived next door to the tragic suicidal Harold Smith. They lived in the in that trailer park uh, at one point where Harry Dean Stanton lived in Firewalk with me. So here we have this recurring motif. Then of I got the sense that Rancho Rosa is this place that that probably like Dark Cooper kind of set up and and maybe even kind of controls to kind of essentially you know set up the the murder of Dougie or to control Dougie. I don't know. Um, so so yeah, you have those characters that kind of mirror the Chalfonts. Um, as Agent Cooper is exiting Rancho Rosa, he looks up and he sees that one of the street names is Sycamore. And so that we know that the entrance to the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks, where the burnt engine oil is, um, is surrounded by sycamore trees. And you can even argue then that the assassins who were obviously there, employed, in my opinion, by Dark Agent Cooper to finish off the job of assassinating the return of Agent Cooper. I think that Dark Cooper was counting on 
Dougie to swap places with Agent Cooper. So it's possible that those two underworld guys were planning to shoot Dougie. But I think that what Dark Cooper was counting on was that he assumed that Doug and Agent Cooper would switch places and then, then those assassins would see Agent Cooper and just assume that it was Dougie in a dark suit and they were going to shoot him. Let me quickly hit you with this because like, I, I do think you're right that Dirty Cooper, this was his plan, this his perfectly executed plan to, to ensure that the good Agent Cooper was killed. We find out later that Dougie is having serious money problems and seems to be owing a lot of money to some, you know, un- classic undisclosed mob figures like, you know, sort of the your Jack Laurents from Lost Highway. That's kind of established later. So my interpretation was that like Dirty Cooper had somehow arranged things so Dougie would owe money to the wrong people. I think it's like like the mob or whoever the mob is in Las Vegas now. I think they were there to kill Dougie. Not maybe not necessarily sent by Dirty Cooper. Um who knows? Uh we move from this kind of incredible suburban Las Vegas, you know, recently created seeming mirror of Twin Peaks. The the last few sequences of episode three, Jeff, are some of my favorite things I've ever seen. And I've now I've now rewatched them twice to confirm it. You know, we move from uh, Hawk and Lucy and Andy in the Twin Peaks department trying to get to the bottom of the log ladies, uh, you know, expressions to Hawk about, you know, what is missing and how he needs to use his heritage. And I just have to say, Michael Horse, who was always just such a great supporting figure in the original Twin Peaks, I can already tell that he's going to be like a personal standout for me this season. Him sort of like muttering over the over the fact of the chocolate bunny and sort of saying like, it's not about the bunny. Is it about the money? No, it's not about the money. I, I I could watch that just just over and over again. I, I love the sort of little beats in that scene, and you know, like I, I just felt like that that for me was like you know this bizarrely, incredibly slowly paced sequence that just kept on paying off the more that I watched it. And but then to talk about <laughs> slow paced sequences. Cut back to Dr. Jacoby in the forest. Not only is he spray painting shovels, he has created an elaborate Dr. Seuss mechanism to make it easier for him to spray paint shovels. And I timed it. I timed it. We watched him spray paint shovels for two minutes and 17 seconds. Yeah, the the slow burn of Dr. Jacoby, I think, is going to be one of my favorite things on this show. You know, I think all I'll say about the the spray painting of the shovels. I don't know why he's doing it, but I would say that it continues this visual motif, this color coding in this entire episode of yellow gold that is linked to like, you know, obviously the cream corn vomit of the throw up there to the desert landscapes of both South Dakota and Las Vegas, the sort of linking of this desolation and pain and sorrow. Um, but now we have like Dr. Jacoby, like painting these, these things, yellow gold. And, you know, is he, is he going to dig something up? Is he going to bury it? Like, is it, is this some ominous thing? I, I don't know. Um, even in the, the, I believe that the silver Mustang casino, 
um, that we saw, while it's called the Silver Mustang Casino, the digital kind of like a display outside that the symbol for this casino is actually a blazing gold yellow horseshoe. So, um, yeah, there's this interesting color coding that is happening throughout linking like pain and sorrow and money. And, you know, going back to Rancho Rosa, this is a whole housing development that has fallen into foreclosure. Um, So you get this real sense of like of a wasteland of pain and sorrow being linked to the pursuit of money and fortune, perhaps. Um, I'm interested in seeing where all of these themes are, are heading moving forward. You're listening to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. If you're a fan of the dark fantasy or psychological horror of Twin Peaks, be sure to check out Shudder. It's a premium streaming video service backed by AMC Networks and is devoted to horrors, thrillers, and suspense. With Shudder's programming, you'll always find something to scare you in a new way, whether you're looking for a classic suspense film, a cat and mouse thriller, a good old-fashioned monster movie, or even a terrifying tale of the supernatural. This week's Shudder highlight is George Scott, a 10-episode folk horror series about a policewoman named Eva who returns to her hometown seven years after her daughter's disappearance. As Eva begins investigating a new wave of vanishing children, her search draws her deep into the forest. She realizes there are supernatural secrets in town, and if she exposes them, it can make someone or something very angry. It sounds very Twin Peaksy. For $4.99 a month or $49.99 with an annual membership, you can access Shudder on the web, iOS, Android, Chromecast, Apple TV, or Roku. But listeners of this podcast can get a free month simply by entering the promo code PEAKS, capital P, capital E, capital A, capital K, capital S, PEAKS, at checkout. That's P-E-A-K-S, all caps. Go to Shudder.com today and find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere. Jeff, so some of the effects in this episode are like, I would term them like a little bit primitive. And the effect of the little sort of Black Lodge curtain floating over the different casino machines, the different slot machines, that was like something out of Wonder Chosen, essentially. But (laughs) I just loved the goofiness of it, like just kept building and building. Every time Agent Cooper would see the little floating thing and that sound would sort of play on the soundtrack, I thought it was so funny. This is all kind of prelude for what I think is maybe the most the most helpful from a plot statement perspective moment that we've had in the season so far. We cut to FBI headquarters. Gordon Cole, David Lynch, as always, is sort of taking a meeting with some assembled FBI agents. And then he, and- he, he recall, but he asks one uh, agent to stay behind. And her name is Tamara Preston, who is his like new like chief agent in like Blue Rose Mysteries, apparently, with Albert, Albert Rosenfield, who is there too. And a, a little fun fact for you guys, if you haven't investigated the secret history of Twin Peaks written by Mark Frost, um, then you should know that Tamara Preston is actually a major quote-unquote author of that book. She's actually introduced in that book. She's the one that is sort of analyzing Major Briggs's um, massive occult history of Twin Peaks. Um, But yeah, she gives us a, a sort of download of information explaining the murders of those two young lovers that were mauled and got their heads ripped off by the monster that formed in the giant glass box in the last episode. And some information that we got and just correct me what I'm missing here, Darren, but um, 
NYPD has no idea who owns that building, doesn't know what, what the whole thing was about. But did we find out some other information in this scene? Yeah, what we what we found out was that those two uh, young people who we saw uh, apparently being killed, uh, whoa, definitely did they get killed. We saw sort of like their corpses, their heads sort of like blown inwards, no fingerprints on them, and there was a quick shot of that shadowy monstrosity that did in fact like that that was on the digital cameras that they found at the scene but no indication that they saw agent cooper all they saw was that sort of strange being and so this episode part three ends with gordon cole getting a phone call from south dakota cooper has been found and is being held um, by authorities there and this is a shocker to both albert and gordon because because Cooper has been missing for a long time. And so, you know, uh, Gordon says, you know, we leave first thing in the morning for the Black Hills of South Dakota. Turns out that will not be, that's not exactly in South Dakota where they're going. And Gordon Cole will be very disappointed by that. But I have to note that the line that Albert says is sort of kind of a sigh about the descent into weirdness that they're about to undertake as he says, uh, the absurd mysteries of the strange forces of existence. And then he says to Tamara, how about a truckload of Valium? A little sort of like a, a little footnote there, I believe, Darren. And again, this is another example of this episode just being suffused explicitly and implicitly and through echoes with Lynch's former previous work, both made and unmade, the absurd mystery of the strange forces of existence is the subtitle of David Lynch's famously unmade movie, Ronnie Rocket. And a lot of people tend to think that the recurring double R uh, locations that often happen in a lot of his films is sort of a nod to Ronnie Rocket. Um, and I don't know much about that script, Darren, but I think it involves like a strange person who has sort of mastery over electricity. And so you could see a lot of the motifs in this episode involving electricity, about the return of Agent Cooper being magically charged as, you know, like is part three, like the closest that Lynch will ever get to actually be making Ronnie Rocket? Did he just do it right in front of our eyes there? That was part three of Twin Peaks. That's a great question, Jeff. I, I would just say, though, as you know, as a great David Lynch scholar, um, the original title of Inland Empire was actually Truckload Full of Valium. So it's, <laughs> it's a great little reference. Great, just just full of references. I got to just say, uh, and we'll talk about this more later, Miguel Ferrer, R.I.P., late great actor. I, I can already tell that everything he says in this season is going to make me guffaw with laughter. His line readings were so magnificent. Um, so, Jeff, episode four, fortuitously a little bit less myth arc heavy. Just a lot of uh, Dale Cooper uh, in the guise of Dougie Jones winning a whole lot of mega jackpots as the casino staff gets more and more nervous. Two things that I would just call out are there seems to be this establishing thing of everyone being watched inside the casino like the uh, the, the kind of the older lady who's kind of following Dale around keeps on seeing the security cameras Dale notices the security cameras inside of the pit boss's office not sure what's going on there perhaps it refers back to the to the digital cameras that were looking at the glass box maybe it's just you know evidence that David Lynch is as freaked out by the surveillance state as as we all are um, but I also want to call out that when Dale runs into kind of friends of Doug 
Maggie, uh, played by um, Ethan Supley, he sort of reminds him that he lives on Lancelot Court, which, given the role of Dale Cooper as this kind of knight errant in the show, feels like it's either a reference to that or some kind of joke about that. But also, Darren, but not, not only does he live on Lancelot Court, he lives like down the street from like Merlin's Supermarket, I believe, or something yeah, like that. That's right. Merlin's but, Market. Merlin's but Market. But this yeah. continues this sort of like interest that Twin Peaks has in King Arthur mythology because isn't like, you know, the entrance into the Black Lodge in the forest like Glastonbury Cove yes, or something yes. like that, which Grove. is like the Glastonbury, Glastonbury Grove. Grove, which is named after the famous burial place of King Arthur, right? Yes. There's an interesting correlation there. Dale returns to Dougie's house. We discover that Dougie is married to a woman played by the great Naomi Watts, uh, who we all know from her role in Mulholland Drive and as one of the bunnies in, in Inland Empire. She is sort of angry at him. It's clear that Dougie has been, has been gone for a few days, gets decidedly less angry when she sees that he's returned with a kind of pillowcase filled with money, and she says there's enough to pay them back. Still not clear on who that them is. Um... We also had a check-in with a, you know, great character from the original season, Jeff. And, you know, you've kind of talked a lot about this character, actually, in, in some of your write-ups. Um, how did you feel about where we found uh, Denise? Denise has done very well uh, with, with her career since we last saw her in Twin Peaks Season 2. Yeah, she's moved up in the world. She's now the chief of staff of all of the FBI. She's Gordon Cole's boss. Um, and we had this very sweet scene slash self-congratulatory scene, I thought, where the, the show kind of pats itself on the back for being so progressive and giving us a transgender character back in the day. Gordon has to go, is either has to either seek some permissions or is being called into uh, Denise's office uh, before he can go to South Dakota because of the way that he wishes to conduct his investigation. And Denise needs to talk to him about this. So basically, Denise's concern is, is that Gordon Cole is bringing uh, Tamara with him. And and a piece of uh, lore that was sort of like maybe flicked at in the original Twin Peaks through Gordon Cole's uh, uh, strange uh, crush and fixation on Shelley, um, we learned that apparently Cole has this rather conspicuous history of being rather interested in young women, um, and specifically young female agents, and that that might not necessarily make them all feel comfortable. So Denise kind of had to like call out uh, like Gordon Cole on, hey, like, uh, what are you doing with Tamara? And uh, wh why is she coming with you? And, uh, and Cole has to sort of set him straight, you know, I'm old school, you know, and it's all appropriate on the up and up. And hey, don't cast aspersions on me because back in the day when you were Dennis, I had so much dirt on you. <laughs> like you were a wild person too. Um, and so like, you know, he, he wins over Denise and he has that really lovely line that he said, you know, when you were transitioning and I told all the people that couldn't deal with it to change their hearts or die. Um, <laughs> like I thought and that, that really softens up Denise and allows her to give her blessing for, for Gordon to go on this mission with, with Tamara. And as Gordon Cole leaves the office, she starts fanning herself either because of the hormones or Gordon Cole gives her hot flashes. I don't know. 
Yeah, very, very unclear. I, I kind of, I do agree with you, Jeff. It did feel like the show was partially kind of being like, yeah, look at us. We were like really ahead of the game on this. But also like, you know, here's a check-in from David Duchovny, who it turns out, even after all these years, still looks great no matter what you dress him up in. So I, I like, I definitely did enjoy that. But f- from there, we check in a little bit with the town of Twin Peaks. We see the kind of official arrival of Sheriff Truman, our new Sheriff Truman, though he's seems to have been here for quite a long time, played by the great Robert Forster. It's clear that uh, Sheriff Truman kind of shares his brother's kind of nonchalant way of interacting with some of the loopier people that he works with. On the other side of the station, you have these more sort of like screwed on tight, responsible police officers that practice actual real police work in a very traditional science way. And straddling between them is like Bobby Briggs, which we found out since uh, since his bad boy days as a high school student in the original Twin Peaks, he is now a police officer too. And he seems to maybe kind of occupy more of the other side, the, the more modern side. He's in charge of surveillance and he watches, I think, the, the quote-unquote drug routes that are coming down from Canada into Twin Peaks and, and uh, from over the border. So that's kind of his job. And you had that really beautiful moment where he enters the room where they're looking at all the old evidence from the Laurel Palmer case and he sees that picture of Laura and he's completely triggered and he has a crying moment that reminds us of the way that Andy cried over the corpse of Laura Palmer uh, back in the pilot of Twin Peaks and now Bobby's having it and maybe for the first time in the series in the story proper we get a huge hit of the Angelo Badalamenti score which has been kind of conspicuously spare up until now Um, but he sees that moment and then um, he, he starts crying and we hear that huge swell of music and we're flooded with nostalgia. We both kind of want to, we kind of want to laugh at it. It seems so very soap operatic, but like Dana Ashbrook really sells it too. And you really enter into his feeling for it too. It, it's a great moment. And through it all, Robert Forster's character of Sheriff Truman's brother, who we will also call Sheriff Truman He's kind of moving through all of this world, both sides of his world, with this sort of kind of like detached bemusement of the whole thing. I mean, he's just very... I can't quite figure him out, you know, like whether it's the, the, the oddness, what, you know, he, he kind of rolls with everyone the same way, whether it's the high, strange, you know, like uh, Andy and Lucy, Lucy kind of like reacting in total shock and recoil as Sheriff Truman walks in talking on his cell phone. And apparently Lucy has this massive aversion to modern technology and cell phones that she kind of feels subverted in her own way and her job and her own person. And, uh, but he has a similar reaction to like, you know, like, like Bobby to Hawk to everything. And so I'm absolutely fascinated by this character. I want to know more about him. And of course, fun fact for anyone who knows deep Twin Peaks lore, Robert Forster, I believe Darren was Lynch and Frost's first choice for the role of Sheriff Truman, but for some reason he passed or whatever. And so it went to Michael Onkeen. 
Yeah, um, when I was uh, fortunate enough to speak to Robert Forster at the Twin Peaks premiere, uh, I, I mostly blacked out for this. But when I when I rewatched my interview, I, I discovered that what he told me uh, while I was just hypnotized by his gaze was that he had been kind of offered Twin Peaks, but did another pilot instead that didn't wind up going. So missed Twin Peaks that time. Then, of course, uh, Robert Forster was going to be a big part of the Mulholland Drive TV show. That didn't wind up going. And so he's only in Mulholland hole and drive for like two shots it's one of the most fascinating just random cameo moments ever um so it's been a long time waiting for him to have a lead role on a david lynch show Uh, i'm very excited that it has happened um one thing that i would just uh uh, point out also jeff while we're on the bobby briggs of uh, of this sequence love the fact that he's apparently in charge of monitoring the drug routes from canada as he definitely was involved uh in the drug trade coming from canada and indeed killed a man on one of those drug routes in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. That's a good, you know, Jeff, reha- rehabilitation is possible. That's what I'm saying. It is It is possible for someone who's, who's, who's broken bad to break good again. Maybe, we'll see. Um, but follow up, we get a big kind of download of information from him when he hears that Hawk is kind of investigating Dale Cooper. He mentions that Cooper was the last person to see Major Garland Briggs alive. That Garland Briggs apparently died when his station burned down. Um, Cooper had come by the house to talk to his dad. So the, 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 we sort of, it, it's an interesting little bit of just kind of like dotting I's and crossing T's on what seems to have happened to Major Garland Briggs. We can assume that Dirty Cooper had something to do with it. Um, but <laughs> before we leave the Twin Peaks PD, I, I really got to say, Jeff, I. I was hesitant a little bit when I saw the cast list of this new season because I was a little worried about like what happens sometimes when you just have a lot of famous people and a lot of familiar faces cameoing like you know will it kind of pull you out of it in a way that is not ultimately helpful for the season. Uh, we hear that Lucy and Andy's son, Wally, has shown up. Wally Brando is his name, born on the same day as Marlon Brando. He wants to see Sheriff Truman. Sheriff Truman goes outside. Wally Brando is played by Michael Sarah. Michael Sarah, who, who who I like a lot, but but like like a lot of people of, of my generation, certainly he carries a lot of associations, and I'm kind of like, oh boy, I don't know about this. He sort of is dressed in such a way as to kind of resemble Marlon Brando from his family famous motorcycle role and he kind of unfurls this incredible soliloquy that i really really kind of worked for me um but specifically because what he was talking about was sort of like you know he's you know i'm driving on the road and the road that lewis and clark once walked but my heart is always here with you and these fine people using just a very strange voice i mean like like how'd you kind of feel about that scene jeff it really for me kind of rode the line of going on too long and working just just right but i i I did ultimately kind of come around to liking it even if i do think it was just sort of a cameo moment that may not necessarily lead to anything else oh i'm the more i watch that scene the more i'm obsessed with it it definitely it's a great example of what i think i talked about at the start of this podcast it's a scene that throws you like at first like the again the shock of the new of lynchian comedy and weirdness and irony 
and you're like, is is this for real? Is this happening? Like, what am I supposed to? Th- this is, this is crazy. Is this stupid? And then, and then watching it again, I just get into it more and more, and I feel it reveals more and it suggests more. Like, so we learn in this scene that um, Sheriff Truman, the Sheriff Truman that we know, is this guy's godfather. But you also get the sense. I don't know if you got that. Either he's just kind of weird this way and he's come to pay his respects because he kind of lives in this sort of like big mythology or whatever. But I almost got the sense, Darren, that these two have history, that Wally might have had a sort of like wild child upbringing in Twin Peaks and that maybe he was, you know, had some run-ins with the police and maybe run-ins with this Sheriff Truman. And there seemed to be maybe some subtext there because there's something I think really layered about Michael Sarah's performance here where like, I think that if you're watching him and you're asking, is he really, does he really believe that he is Marlon Brando-ish or if he's just putting everyone on and pulling everyone's leg and messing with people? I think you can read that performance both ways and that Wally knows that. And I think he knows that maybe Sheriff Truman knows that too. And there's some of his line readings that are both really sincere, but that by the end, it almost looks like the way that Sarah's playing Wally, that he can't, he's, he's trying to almost suppress a smirk or a laugh about what he's doing. Um, but you know, like in a two hours in which we, we got reincarnation motifs here where Cooper exists as a spirit realm and then reincarnates in this world as this sort of like brain uh, memory purged version of himself, which seems to be a complication, by the way, we didn't cover this earlier of like whatever scam uh, that Dirty Cooper is pulling. But in, in this sort of like motifs of reincarnation, I'm almost wondering if maybe one of the things that we're, we're supposed to be wondering about is that because Wally was born on Marlon Brando's birthday is he the reincarnation of Marlon Brando? Ah! Like, is that one ah! of the possibilities here? You know? Oh but the other thing that I would say here from a meta point of view, in terms of if this is a show that's talking about itself and talking to us about itself, notice some of the themes that he hits here. You know, he's coming by Twin Peaks. He's passing through. He's just dropping by. And he's come to give his parents permission to refurbish his room, you know, and and to turn it into a study. And it's almost like he's come to represent in, in at least one aspect, like him saying, I'm here to give up my nostalgia for the past. And I'm here to basically allow all of you to move on. And then the other thing he talks about is that He's he's traveled this country from Philadelphia, I think, to Stockton, California, and all points in between. He's rid with his shadow on one side, on his right, on his left, but not on cloudy days or at night. Um, he's got a map of America written on his heart. And now he's a creature of the world, just like this new Twin Peaks. This Twin Peaks is a story about America, not just Twin Peaks. But what he says is, but this place is still very dear to me. And I almost felt like, 
one of my grand arguments are gonna, I'm going to make and explore over the course of this podcast is whether or not Twin Peaks is being used by Lynch and Frost as a giant art project to interrogate our cultural nostalgia for everything, and including things like Twin Peaks. And so here we have um, this echo of Marlon Brando, which is also this metaphor for nostalgia unto itself, talking about giving up his nostalgia for his past, but also making a a separate but equal point that like, but this place is still important to, to me too. Um, we could probably decode some hours decoding everything that, that he might represent. But I also kind of wonder if it's the show telling us, hey, guys, this new Twin Peaks is about a lot of other things than just this town. But we want you to know that we love this place too. And we will be getting there and spending more time here. Or maybe not. I mean, maybe we have to make peace with our nostalgia and and just kind of accept this as it is and move forward into the future. Um, that kind of ties into my theory of Cooper. Like, you know, I think that the show is really playing with us to a cruel degree. Like, we want the Agent Cooper that we know. We want to see him restored. We want to see him back in Twin Peaks to go home. Finding a home is another big theme of these two hours, too. And the show is just now very explicitly about this. Is he going to reconnect with himself? Is he going to rediscover his Agent Cooperness? Or Darren, is this a story about Cooper being lost to us? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm almost a little choked up. No, I'm just kidding. I just swallowed some saliva. But um, <laughs> anyway, Cooper, is this about Cooper reconnecting with who he was? Well, I'm getting a little choked up. Just this is a lot to take in, Jeff. Give me, give me a moment here, man. I mean, like, I'm, I'm, I'm already dealing with the emotions of what Wally Brando said, and now you're hitting me with this idea that I, I've been thinking a lot about too. Because while we're talking nostalgia, I, what's always been interesting to me about this new Twin Peaks is we live in this era where every single thing, certainly from my childhood and I think from your childhood and even from people who are older than us as childhood, everything kind of gets reheated, rebooted, revived, whatever. And, you know, for a lot of people, it just seems like what that means and what they want out of that is often radically divergent from what the people doing the reviving want or even what the original people who are involved in it want. And I understand the frustration and feel it myself with the fact that we're somehow four episodes in and Kyle MacLachlan has played, let's say, three and a half different people if we kind of include the version of Cooper that we've seen kind of falling through the Black Lodge. And yet we still haven't really seen our Cooper. And I find that interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm sure, and I'd love to hear from people who feel this way, I'm sure there's a sense of like, you know, why couldn't we have just started with Agent Cooper investigating something? Like, And I, I sort of understand that. But I, I am also just really intrigued by the way that at least the the good Cooper who we are kind of following primarily as a protagonist, his experience of almost kind of reassembling himself in these two episodes. And, you know, we move past that as we return to him in Las Vegas. There is a, 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 sort, of, a sort of moment of just literal toilet humor as he goes to the bathroom for the first time and initially seems horrified by it, but then feels great. And I, I sort of loved Kyle McLaughlin's... The, the stuff he's doing, I think, is stunningly brave because so much of what he's done so far this season could seem really, really goofy. And that's up to it, including 
wearing what I have to assume is a very long, you know, evil Cooper wig. But he walks out from the toilet, looks at himself in the mirror, and there's this moment, and I'm, I'm going to butcher what this is exactly, but psychologists have that notion of, like, the mirror phase, of, like, you know, when a new being is sort of becoming aware of itself and its surroundings. He goes downstairs for breakfast. We meet Sonny Jim, who seems to be the son of Dougie, and Sonny Jim flashes him a thumbs up, and, and like, that, that seems to kind of activate something for Cooper. And, you know, is, is that a memory of himself? Is that some, we certainly recognize it as some essential aspect of Cooperness from the original Twin Peaks. But then, <laughs> again, another just really, really long build up to a moment, goes downstairs, sits at the breakfast table, has this sort of wordless interaction with, with Sonny Jim, has the tie like over, over his face just seems to be kind of, you know, interacting with the world as we've seen him do so far. But then Dougie's wife mentions coffee. <laughs> and like there's just like this sort of exclamation point that that happens over Cooper's head. And so I'm I'm intrigued by the idea of us never seeing our agent Cooper again. I'm wondering if that's kind of what we're seeing Dale do now. He's sort of literally reassembling himself, and now we've got the thumbs up in the coffee, so we're kind of halfway there, I would say. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, like, the, the, the story that it's, that it's suggesting, tempting, teasing, is this sort of, like, classic amnesia subplot in soap operas where the amnesia victim slowly starts recovering a sense of memory and identity of self. And I'm also remembering, say the last season of Lost and the sideways world where, you know, people are sort of like recovering their memory and waking up and that you have the create these huge emotional dramatic moments for the show um, in its late stages where like they're absolutely recovering their authentic identity, you know, so it's teasing that and we're either building up to that full recovery or we're building to some sort of of new Cooper that he's recombining. Maybe he'll recover some memory, but maybe he'll add new experience. Does he import in memory and experience from evil Cooper so that by the end, this story is about creating a new model Cooper that makes some sort of statement about a complexity about identity and, and evolving and moving forward? I'm I'm fascinated to see what Cooper's going to become and I'm fascinated to see if the show is going to please us the way that we want to be pleased or if it's going to go another way. Well, as 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 far as the way that it's going, as crazy as some of the red room stuff is, I do feel like there's a lot of helpful signposting happening with the supernatural stuff. It's so far in this season, that's even a little bit more direct than what we used to get, because in this sort of sequence of seeing Dale as Dougie putting on his green jacket, because apparently he won the Masters, yeah. you know, like in this in this moment, he kind of sees through into the red room. The one armed man is there. Mike is there, whatever you'd prefer his, his nomenclature to be. And what he tells our Cooper is you were tricked holds up the gold orb, which I'm now realizing is him kind of showing what the trick was, and then says, one of you must die. And I think we can fairly easily interpret he's referring to the two Coopers who are kind of running around America right now. The color coding, again, 
Dougie Jones, before he gets sucked into the Black Lodge and gets his head popped off, he's wearing this sort of like yellow coat, this like, you know, Century 21 real estate agent like coat, but it's the color of creamed corn, right? It's pain and sorrow. Now, like, you know, Agent Cooper in the guise of Dougie Jones is wearing that green coat, which I agree. Like, I love the master's jacket, but I like the pitting of yellow versus green. The yellow world of, of down below here in, in the underworld of the United States, the desert, um, the, the land of pain and ser- sorrow being pitted against the land of green up above the more idyllic heavenly place of Twin Peaks. So I'm fascinated with the psychogeography of Twin Peaks, um, but we'll talk about that more later. Let's, let's drive toward the home stretch here. Darren, can you tell us a little bit about what happened to Gordon Cole and Albert Rosenfeld um, when they went and met Dark Cooper in South Dakota? Uh, tragically, Jeff, we learned that uh, they're not really anywhere near Mount Rushmore, but uh, Albert did bring a picture of Mount Rushmore for Gordon to look at. <laughs> they arrive at the local PD. They discover that inside of Dirty Cooper's car, there was cocaine, a machine gun, and a dog leg, <laughs> to which Albert says, what, no cheese and crackers? <laughs> Yeah, Albert Rosenfeld comedy here, which is great. Like the joke he makes about how the police officer who smelled that vomit is now in uh, in the ICU, and he goes, "It must be the local cuisine or something." He must have he must have eaten locally, yeah. Um, but so then we get this moment that you know again we, we talk so much about the comedy of these episodes. This scene to me gets to the core of something that you'd kind of pointed out to me, Jeff, while we were kind of preparing to do this podcast, which was just how good Lynch is at sort of staging these sequences that just radiate with pure evil. Like no nothing nothing ambiguous about it. Um we get this great sort of triptych of Gordon and Tamara and Albert sitting on one side of an interrogation room. They kind of open up the shutters and on the other side, there is who they believe to be Dale Cooper. And what he kind of says to Gordon, there's this just bizarre synthetic quality. Watching it again, I was trying to figure out what exactly was up with his voice. Is it just that it's kind of going through this weird speaker? It sounded to me a little bit like, perhaps in post, they even kind of slowed down Kyle McLaughlin's voice. Um, but just there's this this strangeness. What he says to him is just, you know, very, very bizarre. Uh, you know, very good to see you again, old friend. I, I need to be debriefed by you about this work he tells Gordon that he's been working deep cover with Philip Jeffries who we of course mentioned is the character played briefly and memorably by David Bowie in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me he almost seems to kind of be repeating things like he claims that he was returning to be debriefed when his car went off the road and you know he, he kind of says that again his his kind of final word after he tells Gordon that uh, <laughs> that he's pretty sure that no court of law will find him guilty of anything. Forgot to mention that when he first sees Gordon, he flashes him the thumbs up. There's, there's a lot of a lot of thumbs up going on in this episode, and to have this happen so soon after the interaction between Sonny Jim and Bright Dale Cooper, there's just a real maliciousness to it. Um, you know, we kind of cut to outside. Gordon is very disturbed by this. He has sort of a private conversation with Albert about it. And what Albert reveals 
he had sort of allowed Philip Jeffries, this, this long missing agent, to tell Cooper some information. And the information applied to, I believe he said specifically, to our man who was in Colombia. And then a week later, that man was killed. A week after Albert told Philip who that man was. So th- th- this, this implication of this sort of long winding, even more global than we've been so far, kind of mystery of what Dirty Cooper's been up to and how Philip Jeffries might kind of factor into it. I was kind of losing the thread a little bit, and I've, I've rewatched the scene a couple of times. I'm not sure this ties directly into what we saw in Firewalk with me, but certainly there's a sort of indirect strangeness to it. But then we sort of get this great moment of Gordon Cole saying, uh, you know, don't understand the situation. Albert says it's Blue Rose. Gordon says it doesn't get any bluer. This is, of course, a reference to this idea that Gordon Cole has these cases that are kind of codenamed Blue Rose. Since we saw the floating head of Major Briggs say that in space at the beginning of episode three, we can interpret that these threads are beginning to kind of come together. And then we end on what I have to say is a pretty major cliffhanger as far as just wondering who they're talking about uh gordon says that we need a certain person to take a look at cooper asks albert you know do you know where she lives and albert says i know where she drinks smash cut to the bang bang bar where we get yet another performance this one by au revoir simone loving that so far every episode seems to end with a performance at the roadhouse i couldn't quite interpret Should we take literally that cut, I know where she drinks, cut to a place where people drink? Should we interpret that this person is someone from Twin Peaks? That seems a little too straightforward, given the narrative that we've gotten so far. It seems just as likely to me this person might be someone we've never met before, perhaps played by a new cast member. It might be Diane. That's kind of what I initially thought of, but, you know, who's who's to say? What did you kind of think about where we left off here? Well, a couple things about what you said, and I'll give you my prediction about who I think we're going to go see um, at, at the end, but just a couple thoughts about that scene. I thought that just as a scene between two actors, Miguel Ferrer and David Lynch, the way that they're shot together, the intimacy between them as Gordon Cole cranks up the volume on his hearing aid so he can hear more easily and then speak more softly. And that is shot in this sort of like blue light too. It kind of really makes you feel the unspoken in that scene, which is that Miguel Ferrer, unfortunately, is no longer with us either. You know, he passed away several months ago. So this real tenderness between these two characters who are friends and allies and between Lynch and Ferrer who have a, who had a great love for themselves for each other th- that was just imbued with a lot of emotion for for anyone who knows the behind the scenes story and knows the, that actor and so I thought that was really lovely and as for where we're going next I think Diane definitely is like my number one suspect on that um, another theory that I've seen out there is that it's Sarah Palmer so that would sort of pay off the introduction of Sarah Palmer that was that flag plant last week um, because there it's been established that Sarah Palmer has some psychic properties and I think that like um, there is that scene from the second season of of Twin Peaks where you get the sense that Sarah Palmer is channeling someone in the Black Lodge telling people that like Agent Cooper is in the Black Lodge I believe I'm not sure so maybe like Sarah has the abilities to see through Um, the guise of these sort of specters and kind of see them for what they are. So I think it's one of those two, two people. 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's Diane going to be played by Laura Dern, and just for all the Inland Empire fans out there, there's going to be like a little reference to the fact that Diane used to do some work in Hollywood, but now she's resolutely back with the FBI. Jeff, so much to go through. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you thought of episodes three and four of the new Twin Peaks. You can uh, tweet at us. He's at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich. You can email us. Uh, our email is twinpeaks at EW.com. Want to hear what everybody thinks about the gold shovels? We could do a whole podcast just about those gold shovels. And uh, until next Monday, hello! Thanks for listening to today's episode of a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks, brought to you by Shudder, the premium streaming video service devoted to horror, thrillers, and suspense, curated by horror fans who have a deep love and respect for the genre, and it shows so many great films on here, films you never knew existed, plus some old favorites that never fail to frighten. Remember, you can find Shudder on the web, Apple TV, Roku, Google Play, Amazon Prime for $4.99 a month, or $4.99 with an annual membership. And don't forget, listeners can get a free month by entering promo code PEAKS at checkout. Go to Shudder.com today and find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere.